1: Call claygranger.com dot com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done. It's the political equivalent of assassination. It brings out some of the nastiest fighting in politics. It pits political brethren against political brethren. It can tame maverick senators or make governors more radical. And yet, the American primary started as a progressive movement for better government. For President William Howard Taft, the presidency was an office he didn't really want. He wanted to be a Supreme Court justice, and I think it's one of those happy stories of history that in the end he did get the chance to do that. He became Chief Justice. Only in 1908 one could ever become president without wanting it, without having the hunger that all modern candidates and presidents seem to have. One looks at 2008 and Candidates deciding to run, right? Hillary, Obama, talking to friends and friends advising them, look into your hearts and see if you really want to do this. See if you've got the nerve, the fortitude. Well, if someone asked William Howard Taft that in 1907, he would have failed that test. Yet his wife, Nellie, his brother, Charlie, were pushing the issue. And Theodore Roosevelt needed him at that time, too. He made an error in the exuberance of his reelection win in 1904 and said he would observe the tradition of George Washington and not run for a second term. He needed a loyal supporter to put in the presidency, someone who could continue his policies, conservation, trust-busting, consumer protection, and the like. So Taft, his earnest secretary of war, was it. From the get-go, Taft lost the confidence of the progressive or insurgent wing of the Republican Party, which was growing at the turn of the century. They wanted reform, an end to the big trusts, and fair elections. By 1910, there were progressive challengers to official Republican candidates in several primaries across the nation. Not all states have primaries. They were more common in western states, where there were primaries progressive challenged still the primaries of 1910 was not a decisive blow for the insurgents they got the governor of kansas they lost the governorship of ohio that went to the soon to be senator harding the most ambitious plan of the reformers however was something bolder a primary not just in a few states but across the nation to determine who would be the presidential candidate of the republican party a decision that had always been made by the political bosses or, at best, by the, quote, Democratic vote of a group of convention delegates, key activists of the Republican Party, would now be made by the Republican voters in states all across the nation. To that end, a group of insurgent Republican senators met at the home of Robert La Follette, senator from Wisconsin, spirited progressive. They formed the Republican Progressive Party. La Follette wanted to be clear that he was not breaking with the Republican Party. He was trying to change it from within. They would argue for more Senate committee seats. La Follette figured that about one out of four of the Republican senators were insurgents or progressives. So they should get one out of four committee chairs. He was rebuffed in this offer. Nor did he get what he really wanted. A chance to challenge William Howard Taft in a primary. Taft was no fool. He would lose a popular vote of the Republican Party voters. His only hope was to stick with the party machinery, get delegates from the southern states. These are states, Georgia, South Carolina, Louisiana, that since the Civil War, Republicans had no chance of winning and wouldn't win for about 70 more years. But they controlled delegates to the National Convention. And so the few Republicans were there were very powerful people within the party. There was no primary in those states. These southern Republican delegates, many of whom had federal jobs, back the president. Yet progressive reformers were busy convincing progressive Western legislators to introduce primaries across the country. first primary in the nation for presidential primaries, should say, it was in Washington state. But several states soon followed. There were 11 primaries across the nation by 1912. It's easy to look at history sometimes in one of two ways are common. There's the great man theory of history, as it's often ridiculed, where we look at important people and say, Theodore Roosevelt did this, William Howard Taft did this. And then there's the grassroots or movement method of looking at history, where we look at what changes happened in society, what groups of people were thinking. I tend to look at both. Why not? This is a perfect situation for that. Yes, there was a large progressive movement, and people were trying to get fairer elections in the United States. At the same time, The force that propelled state after state to have primaries between 1910 and 1911 was Theodore Roosevelt and his ambition. He hadn't declared his intentions since his return trip from Africa after his presidency. Critics dubbed it the return from Elba. Everyone thought he was running. At the very least, Roosevelt had plans to back somebody in any state's And in many states, progressives there knew that if they introduced a primary to their state, they were helping Theodore Roosevelt. The end result in 1912 was a piecemeal system. The progressive forces didn't get primaries across the nation. So when Teddy Roosevelt threw his hat into the ring and entered the presidential primary, he entered against both La Follette, who still retained some support, and William Howard Taft. Taft lost the first primary in Oregon, that year, 1912. Roosevelt didn't win it either. Robert La Follette came in first. But Roosevelt won North Dakota. Taft then would win the New Hampshire primary, which began that state's primary's career as a force in American politics. A couple of wins in these primaries, plus the block of Southern delegates and delegates who were committed to various Republican office holders put Taft well on his way to the presidential nomination, despite the minor fad in the year of 1912 of these primaries. The attempt to beat William Howard Taft and take the presidency from him within the Republican Party using the primary system didn't work. The primaries didn't sink Taft. He was the official Republican candidate for president in 1912. But the breakup of the party by the insurgent movement, stirred by these primaries, convinced them that they should start a third-party movement, which they did in 1912. Two primaries would turn out to sink presidents later, maybe three. Clearly, Eugene McCarthy's use of the primary in New Hampshire to send a message was instructive to others in American politics. After the 1968 primary, which McCarthy lost, but he gained a significant amount of votes running against Lyndon Johnson, more than anyone thought, And it convinced Lyndon Johnson to leave the race. It convinced Robert F. Kennedy to enter the race. Lyndon Johnson always thought that Robert Kennedy had inspired the Eugene McCarthy run anyway. William Goodwin, good friend of Kennedy, ran the McCarthy campaign.
0: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quitgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: The next two Democratic nominees, Carter and McGovern, came not from the establishment, but from the primary system. There was another primary that in it that helped to sink a president. Estes Kefauver, senator from Tennessee, would challenge Harry Truman, a sitting president, in 1952, and beat him in the New Hampshire primary. That helped Harry Truman to see the light. There was going to be no third term, even though he was allowed constitutionally to run for one if he chose. We might add a third. It's possible that in 1992, Pat Buchanan's near defeat of President George H.W. Bush in the New Hampshire primary that year signaled that Bush was in trouble and helped him along the way for electoral defeat. There are many other factors, of course, in the 92 race. Very close election in which President Clinton didn't even receive a majority of the votes in the end. So it's hard to blame any one factor. It's a phrase you will see on the blogs of the political right, the political left, let's primary him, let's primary her. The threat of a primary against a misbehaving senator or congressman is, it seems, stronger than ever, fueled by Tea Party movements and daily Cossacks who wish to see Democrats be Democrats, Republicans be Republicans. It's become more scientific now, more precise, perhaps, than before. Recently, we've seen the results. Rand Paul, son of the presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in 1988, Republican congressman, and... Radical force in politics, Ron Paul. He beat Trey Grayson, who was the Kentucky Secretary of State, being groomed by the Republican establishment, Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Joe Lieberman, we will remember, was beaten in the primary in 2006 by anti-Iraq war progressive Ned Lamont. Now, Arlen Specter, a recently defected Republican, was defeated in the Democratic primary by Joe Sestak, a Democratic congressman from Pennsylvania, despite the support of President Obama. Blanche Lincoln, a senator from Arkansas, was also primaried and forced into a runoff. It's not new, however, for aspiring politicians to seek a Senate or House seat as a more pure ideological first for the primary. A comparable series of events is in the 1970s when conservatives began to become more active and take over the Republican Party, culminating in the presidency of Ronald Reagan. I would start with Jacob Javits, The senator from New York was a liberal Republican. He was challenged in 68 by James Buckley, the brother of commentator William F. Buckley. He survived that primary challenge. But 12 years later, Alphonse D'Amato, veritable unknown, attacked how liberal Javits was and won a 1980 primary. So it would be D'Amato and not James Buckley that would beat Javits. In the end, Buckley would become a senator from New York by challenging Charles Goodell. He was a Republican who had been picked by Nelson Rockefeller, also sort of a Republican liberal at that time, to replace Robert F. Kennedy. Goodell immediately began attacking the Vietnam War policy of the administration. Now in 1970, it's now a Republican administration. James Buckley didn't like this, and he knew a lot of conservative activists didn't either. He began telling conservative supporters, isn't it time we had a senator? And he beat Goodell in the Republican primary and went on to win the Senate seat. In 1978, in New Jersey, a senator named Clifford Case was also fairly moderate to liberal. A conservative named Jeffrey Bell decided to run against him in the Republican primary. Things didn't work out as well for Bell as it did for Buckley. Politics sometimes is about who the other guy is in the election. And in Bell's case, the other guy was an NBA superstar. Democrats chose Bill Bradley as their nominee for the New Jersey Senate in 1978. And Bell's primary challenge to Clifford Case didn't work out so well for New Jersey Republicans. One of the more famous primary movements, one that you could really equate to today where senators are being, quote, primaried, is the so-called purge of 1938. President Roosevelt decided that He had had enough of his critics. Key among them was Miller Tidings of Maryland, Guy Gillette of Iowa, Cotton Ed Smith of South Carolina, William Franklin George of Georgia. These were Democrats who used his name when it helped, ran as Democrats, same party, but campaigned against the New Deal and voted against the New Deal and the spending that was going on in the Roosevelt administration.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Purge wasn't thought of as such and when it started among White House aides without Roosevelt's backing, after New Dealers were able to get Claude Pepper, who was a big supporter of the New Deal, elected to the Senate from Florida. They were excited and decided to consolidate the gains, take out the other senators. Roosevelt was reluctant at first, but in his second term, feeling politically supreme, he soon joined the battle. Things didn't go all that well. His candidate in South Carolina, Olin Johnson, who was the governor of that state, ended up in a race-baiting battle over who was the more white supremacist candidate with Cotton Ed Smith. And it didn't look good for FDR and the New Dealers. In Georgia, the so-called purge candidate for senator, as Time Magazine called him, U.S. Attorney Lawrence Sabaya Camp of Atlanta came in a pathetic third. Senator William Franklin George, a target of the purge, was congratulated by all the conservatives. Carter Glass said, God bless the southern state of Georgia. Jim Farley, FDR's right-hand man, was honest in talking to Time Magazine's reporters. It's a bust, he said. Thank God the primaries are over. Only in Kentucky did future VP Alban Barkley win. And there, it was accused that Barkley had used WPA jobs in order to win the election. Ed Cotton Smith and Miller Tidings, these were the most vocal critics of the president within his party, did not fall prey to the president's purge, which unfortunately was exactly the term that the press used for it linking the president's actions, sort of, with the recent actions of Hitler in disposing of some political opponents in the Nazi party. That didn't help FDR to get to high ground in this battle. His attempt to primary the senators that were opponents of his is one of those things, along with the blocked attempt to pack the Supreme Court with Roosevelt cronies, that led to a diminishing of Roosevelt's influence in Washington in the later 30s. Any hope that New Dealers would get their supporters out by the primary system was out the door. The New Dealers would be forced to make compromises with conservatives. While it didn't involve a directly inspired presidential primary challenge, a purge or anything like that, the 1911 battle between James Smith, the boss of New Jersey, who had supported Woodrow Wilson's run for governor of New Jersey in 1910, and Senator Martin, the darling of New Jersey progressives, also showed how the primary system could be used to get rid of one's opponents in a party. Once Woodrow Wilson was elected governor with an overwhelming amount of votes for a state that had voted Republican of recent vintage, Woodrow Wilson knew that he had been elected by a progressive. But he also had the backing of the New Jersey political boss, James Smith. This was a conundrum, and Smith forced the issue early. Along with Wilson, the Democrats had captured the legislature. So Smith said, I'd like to become a senator. Wilson knew if he had any hope of being seen as a progressive further, he could not allow Smith to be a senator. Fortunately for Wilson, in 1910, the state had experimented with the primary system, and James Martin had won the primary. The vote of the people, but it was a non-binding primary. So the legislature could still do whatever they wanted. But the new governor had several meetings in a very public battle with Smith. He went after each legislator and urged them to vote for Martin over Smith. The primary, in a sense, had excused Wilson from his obligation to the old boss system. He was able to take the moral high ground as governor. In supporting the vote of the people, the more likely explanation is that Wilson was getting rid of an old political enemy. Still, that battle with Smith got national attention, and Wilson would be seen as a candidate for 1912. But for the primary system, it's unlikely that Wilson would ever have won that election. As a reformed governor, as a former academic without a long, cigar smoke filled career, Wilson looked to the primaries to attack the front runner, Beauchamp Clark, who's the current Speaker of the House. He entered the Wisconsin primary, and a move rare for that time, he actually went to the state to campaign for himself. Champ Clark did not go there, yet, Clark still won the Wisconsin primary, which was kind of an embarrassment for Wilson. Still, primary victories in Oregon and then his home state of New Jersey, where the Smiths' were still working against him, but Wilson was able to win that primary, would help him to get a good base of delegates for his somewhat miracle nomination in Baltimore 1912. Of course, Wilson was not the only president that needed to thank the primary system for them being in the White House at all, John F. Kennedy likely would not have won a convention outright. Stevenson or Johnson probably would have been the 1960 nominee if it was up to the cigar smokers. Jimmy Carter completely challenged the established Democratic Party in 1975 and 1976 and used primaries to win, sometimes taking people who had challenged in primaries before and using them as his organization. Of course, President Obama can thank the primary system for his win over the likely frontrunner, Hillary Clinton, and thus the presidency. These instances were candidates challenging the likely nominee for their own ambition, but they're not necessarily represent purges or ideological battles that we might see in today's primaries. What is most interesting about the 2010 primary results is that the challenges were fueled by groups of activists, the much-celebrated Tea Party on the Republican side. And let's say the DFA, Democracy for America, and bloggers and unions on the Democratic side. So Tea Party on the Republican side, DFA, bloggers, unions, etc. on the Democratic side. Activists have shown an increasing willingness to challenge the members of their own party and have the organizations and money to do so. A Google search for let's primary him results in many instances across the blogosphere, on both right and left blogs. Are you listening, Noah Webster? Primary is now a verb. Another interesting trend is that the effects of the let's primary him threat, or let's primary her threat, happen even when the challenge is not made or when it's not successful. Just the threat of it can be enough. John McCain is talking very differently on immigration than he had before in 2006 once congressman and conservative jd hayworth challenged him in a primary among the reasons arizona governor jan brewer is said to have backed the immigration law in her state was a threatened primary against her but this is not solely on the republican side democracy for america this is the extension of the dean for america movement from 2004 which should you know turn into democracy for america sent out emails threatening primaries to those who didn't support Healthcare reform. The DFA celebrated both the SESTAC win in Pennsylvania and the Halter Lincoln runoff in Arkansas. 2010 is a case where the media got it wrong. The story, agreed on, it seemed collectively by the media, is that the primary election results of 2010 represented an anti incumbent movement. Well, that's only half true. Some incumbents fell or got bad results. It was not general voter anger, although there's certainly some of that, but partisan activist anger which fell these incumbents. But this is 2010, and the primaries are just a century old. What happened before primaries? Was everyone just happy with everyone in their party and kept their own incumbents in and didn't engage in any intra party political intrigue? As you can imagine, of course not. Alexander Hamilton made attempts to eliminate his parties ostensibly his parties presidential candidate the current president john adams in 1800 he backed charles cotworth pickney who was probably the most powerful and popular politician in south carolina among other disagreements hamilton and the high federalists or ultras wanted war with france to avenge vessel-stealing, and the affront to her honor when the United States sent representatives to France and the response was, give us money to talk to the king. Adams sought to resolve the crisis peacefully and sent a moderate diplomatic group and not the ultra Federalist that Hamilton wished to send. And so, Hamilton would not only back Pickney in the 1800 election, but issue a victive against his party's, ostensibly his party's own president, attacking Adams in a leaflet which was widely distributed. So this went on before. What's different today? Well, to some extent, nothing. Just like Hamilton or Roosevelt, there are people who want to punish people in their own parties for their votes. And just like in those days, it sometimes seems that there's more anger within the party. At least you can understand why a political enemy is a political enemy. But why is someone in your own party not voting according to your ideals? In 1800, Hamilton sort of eased Jefferson into the presidency in a way when he ran into his own dispute with Aaron Burr. He helped persuade Federalists to end up breaking the deadlock and voting. For Jefferson. Wasn't exactly supporting Jefferson, but at least in that contest that Jefferson unfortunately found himself in, Hamilton was helpful. Yet he hated Adams. Increasingly, these aren't presidents, political bosses, party leaders and founders who are determining these nomination battles or taking out candidates. The internet allows for national organizations that can send money from part of the country where there are a lot of ideologues, to a part of the country where help is needed in an ideological battle. Senator Blanche Lincoln of Arkansas complained of forces outside of Arkansas that were affecting the Senate race there. Arkansas is not a hotbed of progressive action, but with only a few races going on in America, progressives were able to provide money to Bill Halter's challenge, which forced Senator Lincoln into a runoff. As it did in 2006, when Ned Lamont beat Joe Lieberman in the Connecticut primary, And progressives all around the nation supported the Let's Primary Him movement in Connecticut as punishment for Lieberman's vote on the Iraq, or Lieberman's vocal support of the administration on the Iraq War issue. Lieberman narrowly lost the Democratic primary, but he won in a three-way. He was helped by a scandal that hit the Republican candidate in Connecticut and a not-too-subtle suggestion from the White House and Karl Rove that Republicans wouldn't mind Lieberman in there, especially over Lamont. So what's to make of all this primarying that's going on? Are the people speaking? Are we living up to the ideals of 1910 when Oregon became the first state to start a progressive presidential primary? Or have primaries become the ultimate machine for extreme politics? The way to get rid of politicians to think for themselves and replace them quickly with ideologues. Have we become all of us now? Millions of tiny boss tweeds and tiny mayor dailies. Enforcing discipline on would-be maverick incumbents who don't live up to our ideals. Really I want to thank you for listening. It's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com is where you can go for more episodes. Also, if you'd like to make a donation to help, you can make a donation there.